0: This is Democracy Now! I will deliver a bold plan to cut taxes and grow our economy. I will deliver on the energy crisis, dealing with people's energy bills, but also dealing with the long-term issues we have on energy supply.
1: The Conservative Party has voted for Liz Truss to become Britain's next prime minister, replacing Boris Johnson. We'll speak to British journalist George Mambio. Then to Chile, where voters have overwhelmingly rejected a proposed new constitution that would have given Chile one of the most progressive charters in the world. Despite the defeat, Chilean President Gabriel Boric has vowed to continue efforts to rewrite Chile's Pinochet-era constitution. Este
2: 4 de septiembre, la democracia chilena sale más robusta.
3: On the 4th of September, Chile's democracy emerged stronger. The world has seen and recognized this. A country that, in its most difficult moments, opts for dialogue and agreements to overcome its fractures and pains. And of this, compatriots, we should be deeply proud.
1: We'll speak to the Chilean-American writer Ariel Dorfman and the Chilean feminist Javiera Manzi, And we remember Barbara Ehrenreich, Author of Nickel and Dime on Not Getting By in America.
4: She's died at the age of 81. Jobs are not necessarily a cure for poverty. Jobs that don't pay enough to live on do not cure poverty. They condemn you, in fact, to a life of low-wage uh, labor and, and, and extreme insecurity. All that and more
1: coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations is warning of a looming famine in Somalia, where a searing drought fueled by the climate crisis has withered crops, killed livestock, and left nearly 8 million people, or half Somalia's population, in need of humanitarian assistance. The UN's humanitarian chief, Martin Griffiths, spoke to reporters Monday in the capital Mogadishu after touring camps for internally displaced people and visiting hospitals treating malnourished children. Griffith said afterwards, hundreds of thousands of people are at imminent risk of death.
5: I've been shocked to my core these past few days by the level of pain and suffering. We see so many Somalis enduring. Famine is at the door. And today we are receiving a final warning.
1: The U.N. warns millions more are at risk of hunger and famine across East Africa, including in Kenya and Ethiopia. In Ukraine, the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power station began using one of its own reactors to power critical cooling systems Monday. After heavy fighting between Russian and Ukrainian forces destroyed electrical lines leading to the plant, it's the second time in the last two weeks Europe's largest nuclear power plant has been forced to turn to emergency backup power to prevent a nuclear catastrophe. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of using the power plant as a nuclear weapon. Today, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, will brief the U.N. Security Council on his findings after a team of IAEA inspectors reached Zaporizhia last week. Elsewhere, Ukrainian officials say Russian rocket attacks killed three civilians in Kharkiv, while in the South, officials in the Russian-occupied city of Kherson have postponed a voter referendum on whether to join Russia, as Ukraine presses a counteroffensive to retake the region. The Russian energy giant Gazprom has cut off the flow of gas through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, compounding energy shortages across Europe, which is heavily reliant on Russian fossil fuel. A spokesperson for Russian President Vladimir Putin said Monday, Western sanctions have made it impossible for Russian engineers to maintain components of the pipeline, including a turbine critical to its operation.
4: Pumping problems arose because of sanctions imposed against our country and against a number of companies by Western states, including Germany and the United Kingdom. There are no other reasons that would lead to problems with pumping.
1: Gas prices across Europe jumped by over 30 percent upon news the Nord Stream 1 pipeline would be closed indefinitely, while the euro sank below the value of the dollar for the first time in nearly two decades. Germany's government moved to delay the planned closure of two aging nuclear power plants, citing the need to preserve energy supplies. Meanwhile, Sweden's prime minister's warning of the prospect of a war winter ahead of due to the shutoff of gas. Here in the United States, a vast high-pressure dome brought record heat to California and other Western states over the Labor Day weekend. In Southern California, Burbank reached 110 degrees Fahrenheit Monday, while in the north, Livermore hit a high of 116 degrees, eight degrees higher than the previous record. Fresno's forecast today calls for 114-degree heat, which would be an all-time temperature record for September. The intense heat has helped fuel wildfires, including the Mill Fire, which killed two people Sunday as it tore through the northern California town of Weed. In South Korea. Two people were killed and 10 others remain missing after Super Typhoon Noor crashed ashore earlier today as one of the most powerful storms ever recorded in the Korean Peninsula. The typhoon dumped more than three feet of water in some regions and forced a nuclear power plant offline. At its peak, the typhoon packed winds equivalent to a Category 5 hurricane. Experts say South Korea narrowly avoided a much worse disaster. In Britain, the Conservative Party has elected Foreign Secretary Liz Truss to become the United Kingdom's next prime minister, replacing Boris Johnson, who stepped down following a number of scandals. Truss defeated the finance minister, Rishi Sunak, in a party vote Monday. Truss comes to power as the U.K. is facing an economic crisis, with inflation and energy prices soaring. On Monday, she vowed to slash taxes.
0: I will deliver a bold plan. To cut taxes and grow our economy. I will deliver on the energy crisis, dealing with people's energy bills, but also dealing with the long term issues we have on energy supply.
1: We'll have more on the rise of British Prime Minister Liz Truss after headlines. We'll speak with journalist George Mambio in Chile voters have rejected a new constitution that would have replaced the one imposed by military dictator General Augusto Pinochet after he was installed in a U.S.-backed military coup more than 40 years ago. Results show about 62 percent of Chileans voted no on the new charter, while 38 percent voted in favor. The proposed constitution was the first in the world to be written by an equal number of male and female delegates and included new rights for indigenous people, legalized mandated universal health care, and new commitments to address the climate crisis. We'll have more on Chile's Constitution later in the broadcast. Burkina Faso's government says at least 35 civilians were killed, more than three dozen injured Monday, after a military vehicle struck a roadside bomb north of the capital, fighting between rebels linked to the Islamic State. And the government has increased since January, when Burkina Faso's army deposed the president and installed Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri de Miba as leader. In Afghanistan, a suicide bomber struck the Russian embassy in Kabul Monday, killing six people. A Russian diplomat and a security guard were among the dead. The attack was claimed by the Islamic State affiliate known as ISIS-K, which is also behind a series of attacks on the Taliban and Afghanistan's minority communities. In Canada— Police are searching for one of two murder suspects who remains at large after 10 people were stabbed to death and 18 others injured in a remote region of Saskatchewan. It was among the worst acts of mass violence in Canada's modern history. On Sunday, a pair of men began their violent rampage in the James Smith Cree Nation community, ultimately stabbing 28 victims in 13 different locations. Many of the victims are indigenous. After police launched a manhunt across Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan and neighboring provinces, they discovered the body of 31-year-old Damien Sanderson. The second suspect, his younger brother Miles Sanderson, remains at large. Police say they still haven't identified a motive for the killings. A federal judge in the United States has agreed to appoint an independent arbiter known as a special master to review whether the FBI properly seized documents from Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. U.S. District Court Judge Eileen Cannon agreed with Trump's lawyers that the Justice Department must halt its review of about 150 classified documents recovered by agents executing a search warrant on Trump's— resort and home on August 8th. Many of the documents were marked top secret. Judge Cannon's ruling will delay the Department of Justice investigation into whether Trump violated the Espionage Act and presidential records laws and whether he obstructed justice to cover up those crimes. Judge Cannon was nominated to the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida in 2020 by then-President Donald Trump. In immigration news, at least nine asylum seekers drowned over the weekend as they attempted to cross the Rio Grande along the Texas-Mexico border. Thirty-seven others were rescued. The river is several feet higher than normal, as the region has been hit by torrential rain in recent days. The tragedy has intensified calls for Congress and the Biden administration to enact policies that ensure a safe passage for asylum seekers, including an end to the Trump-era Title 42, which has blocked about two million asylum seekers from Entering the United States to find refuge, forcing them to take dangerous routes into the country. In related news. About 125 asylum seekers have arrived in Chicago on buses sent from Texas. On Sunday alone, the city welcomes some 50 asylum seekers, most of them families. Local officials are demanding Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott collaborate on a more humane treatment of asylum seekers, as Chicago calls on more volunteers to assist the arriving asylum seekers. For months, Abbott's forcibly relocated hundreds of asylum seekers to so-called liberal cities, including New York and Washington, D.C. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli troops killed a Palestinian man during a large military raid in Jenin City early this morning. Twenty-nine-year-old Mohamed Sabana was killed during the assault. Sixteen others were injured by live fire or shrapnel. The Israeli troops surrounded the family home of a Palestinian blamed for a deadly attack in Tel Aviv, cleared the area, and blew it up. Such home demolitions are illegal under international law. Meanwhile, Israel has for the first time admitted its army may have been responsible for the death of Palestinian-American journalist Shirin Abu Akleh, who was shot in the head in May while covering an Israeli raid on Janine. On Monday, Israeli authorities said Abu Akla may have been accidentally hit by Israeli troops' gunfire after they came under fire from Palestinian fighters. Israel says it will not launch a criminal probe into the killing. And Ramallah, Al Jazeera's West Bank bureau chief rejected the Israeli claims.
4: It is clear that they are trying to perpetuate ambiguity and deception on the one hand, while at the same time clear themselves of wrongdoing by claiming that there is an exchange of fire. These are all lies because all the accounts and videos and witnesses disprove their claims.
1: In labor news, Amazon has lost its efforts to overturn a historic vote unionizing its FK8 warehouse in Staten Island, New York. Last week, the National Labor Relations Board recommended Amazon's demand should be rejected after it failed to prove union organizers had allegedly tampered with the election by intimidating workers. The Staten Island Amazon warehouse workers in April voted decisively in favor of joining the newly formed Amazon labor union, despite the retail giant's multi-million dollar union-busting campaign. Tennis superstar Serena Williams lost in the third round of the U.S. Open on Friday in a thrilling match against. Ila Tomyanovich of Australia. Williams recently said she would retire after the U.S. Open and was celebrated throughout. Since becoming a pro at the age of 14, Serena Williams won 23 Grand Slam championships and spent 319 weeks ranked as the top female tennis player in the world. She and her older sister Venus redefined the sport of tennis and inspired new generations of African Americans and all young women to play the game. In other news from the U.S. Open, Francis Tiafo has upset 22-time Grand Slam champ Rafael Nadal to reach the quarterfinals in the U.S. Open. Tiafo is the son of refugees from Sierra Leone. His father was a day laborer who helped build the junior tennis champion center in Maryland. The family lived for years in a vacant storage room at the tennis center. And the writer and activist Barbara Ehrenreich has died at the age of 81. She's best known for her book Nickel and Dimed, on uh, not getting by in America. To research the book, she went undercover as a low-income, non-skilled worker. She later founded the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, air well, part of our interview with her later in the broadcast, and speak with Democracy Now! co-host Juan González about her work with the Young Lords in the early 1970s as a member of the Health Policy Advisory Council. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan González in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan.
6: Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
1: Well, we start in Britain— where the Conservative Party has elected Liz Truss to become Britain's next prime minister, replacing Boris Johnson, who stepped down following a number of scandals. Just before our broadcast, Queen Elizabeth formally appointed Truss to be prime minister. Truss, who served as Foreign Secretary under Boris Johnson, defeated Finance Minister Rishi Sunak in a party vote on Monday. As a college student, Liz Truss once called for the abolition of the British monarchy, but has since shifted her views on this and many other subjects. Truss is a former Liberal Democrat who initially opposed Brexit, but embraced leaving the European Union after the 2016 referendum. On Monday, she vowed to govern as a conservative.
0: During this leadership campaign, I campaigned as a Conservative and I will govern as a Conservative. <laughs> and my friends, we need to show that we will deliver over the next two years. I will deliver a bold plan to cut taxes and grow our economy I will deliver on the energy crisis, dealing with people's energy bills, but also dealing with the long-term issues we have on energy supply. And we will deliver a great victory for the Conservative Party in 2024. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Britain's new prime minister, Liz Truss. We're joined now by George Mambio. He is an author, Guardian columnist, environmental activist. One of his recent pieces is headlined, Britain Faces Crisis Upon Crisis and Our Leaders Are Absent. This is How a Country Falls Apart. Well, George, welcome back to Democracy Now! Why don't you start off by telling us who Liz Truss is and talk about the um country she will now head.
7: Thanks very much, Amy. Well, that's a good question. I've never seen anyone so uncomfortable in her own skin, so apparently ill at ease with herself. Every gesture, every thing she says seems to be mannered and staged. So the real Liz Truss, you know, it's very hard to discern that person behind the person who's clearly practiced her every move in the mirror. And That applies, too, to her policies. She seems to adopt whatever policy um, she thinks is going to find favour with the audience she's speaking to. Now, the terrifying thing about what passes for Britain's democracy is that when the Conservatives are in power um, and they lose their prime minister, the new prime minister is chosen only by members of the Conservative Party. And we think there are around 170,000 of these members. We can't be sure because it's a closely guarded secret. Um, But they are grossly unrepresentative of the nation as a whole. They are mostly male, almost exclusively white, generally rich, comfortable, complacent, living in just a few exclusive parts of the country. And that's the audience that she has been appealing to. And so the policies that she's been putting forward, which she um, seems to have some enthusiasm for, are extreme neoliberal policies, cutting the state, cutting taxes for the rich, um, even more austerity, even more privatisation if she can, just at the time when we need the complete opposite policies. And George Monbiot, in terms of the of the
6: policies that you expect of her, given the fact that Britain obviously has had a resurgence of labor activism uh, in, in uh, recent months, uh, what do you expect will be the main uh, main thing she attempts to accomplish uh, in the early days of uh, of being uh, prime minister?
7: Thanks, Juan. Well, she's adamantly opposed to organised labour. She hates trade unions. Um, She wants to shut down their capacity to strike and to take other forms of collective action. Um, She also has strongly hinted that she wants to tear down the regulations protecting workers, protecting them from being forced to overwork, protecting their terms and conditions, their wages. Um, So that's a great threat to people, especially at a time of, well, we're facing um, a serious economic recession. Um, We're facing a massive cost of living crisis as um, people find these enormous energy bills um, coming on top of very high rents in this country and many other ways in which their ability to survive is being severely squeezed. And um, she wants to destroy workers' bargaining power, destroy um, their ability to set reasonable wages, um, and that will make the life of people in this country even harder than it is already. And it's getting very hard indeed.
6: And I'd like to ask you about the situation with the National Health Service uh, you know, uh, in the United Kingdom, especially after, uh, uh, as we've been through now two and a half years of the COVID pandemic. Uh, the uh, what do you see specifically happening with the National Health Service, which is already in crisis uh, and mm. uh, in, under uh, list trust?
7: Well. Our National Health Service is is the pride of Britain. And, and in fact, it's seen around the world as an exemplar of how a health service should be run, free at the point of use, with a great deal of goodwill, holding it together by very dedicated staff, doctors, nurses, um, all the rest of the staff within the NHS are famous for putting in 110%. But again, Liz Trust seems to hate the NHS. In fact, the Conservatives hate the NHS because the, that small number of people in this country, the 170,000 or so, they generally have private health care. They pay for their health care so they don't see why they should be paying taxes for the rest of the 67 million people in this country who use public health care. So for a long time, the Conservatives have been trying to rip down the NHS and privatise our wonderful public Health system, and um, and as a result of that, with the gross underfunding, even as as people's needs are rising severely because of the aging population, but also because of COVID and the backlog that that has caused, and we we have a massive um, recruitment crisis. There are um, far too few doctors and nurses at the moment. Already, it's struggling, and Truss seems destined only to make things worse. She wants to cut cut, cut, so that she can deliver tax cuts to the wealthiest people in the country. And when she was challenged on that, she was asked, isn't it unfair to be giving those who already have so much money, even more money, whilst strangling the public services on which the great majority of people in this country rely? She said, no, I don't think that's unfair at all.
1: What about climate, George, which certainly is an issue that you uh, extensively follow uh, where she stands?
7: Yeah. Well, in this case, we have direct evidence because she was once environment secretary in, um, in a conservative government. And it's a tough competition because environment secretary is a punishment posting in this country. And so you generally get extremely poor quality Environment secretaries, but she could well have been the worst we have ever had. She tore down regulations, she cut funding for the regulators so that they simply could not do their job. In fact, I turned vegan because of Liz Truss. And the reason for that was I discovered a horrendous case of agricultural pollution of a dairy farm, which had wiped out a long stretch of river, completely destroyed it, apparently deliberately. It had built a pipeline going out of the slurry pits straight into the river. Could not have been a more clear-cut case. But the regulator here, the Environment Agency, simply refused to enforce against this dairy farm. And when I wrote about this, astonished two whistleblowers came forward from the Environment Agency Say we've been told from the top by Liz Truss not to enforce against dairy farmers. So that was the point at which I thought, right, that for me is the final straw. If there's no regulation of this industry, I'm not eating its products anymore. And so that's a measure of the sort of person we have as Prime Minister and already she's signalled that she wants to uh, reopen Um, new oil and gas drilling and fracking in this country, just as we're in the midst of a climate emergency, which we've felt to a very great degree this summer with an unprecedented deadly heat wave and a massive drought. And she wants to make things worse.
1: I wanted to turn to U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, who joined a rally of striking British rail workers in London, saying workers need to stand together to fight against corporate greed and billionaires amassing more wealth. It's the latest in a series of strikes impacting Britain's transport network over the summer, with workers demanding better pay and working conditions in response to high inflation. This is Senator Sanders.
6: What we have seen is a massive distribution of wealth going in exactly the wrong way. The middle class is shrinking and the people on top are getting wealthier. Our job is to take on these oligarchs and our job is to imagine a world of justice. It is not radical, it is not radical to say that every worker in the U.K. and in the United States is entitled to a decent standard of living. That's not a radical idea.
1: So, that's Bernie Sanders uh, standing with the rail workers. Someone else who stood with them um, was uh, uh, Sam Terry, who was a shadow minister with the Labor Party. The Labor Party and the Labor Party leader, uh, Keir Starmer, fired him as a result, even though when he was walking that picket line, he was talking about how important Starmer's leadership has been. He uh, was—he sacked him as shadow minister. George Monbiot, the significance of this and where trust would also stand on
7: all of this. So the great weight that we all carry on our backs in this country is the billionaire media. I know you're very familiar with that in the US, with Fox News and the rest. Well, we've got Rupert Murdoch operating at full throttle here, mostly through the newspapers. Um, the great majority of our newspapers are owned by billionaires or corporations run by billionaires, and they are lethal to democracy. And Keir Starmer is trying to appeal to them. He's trying to appease them because our history shows that if, if they don't back you, you're very unlikely to become prime minister, to form the new government. Um, and now I think he's wrong about this. I think he can go over the heads of the, the, that media. I think people are ready for massive change, but he's timid. I think he actually, he's cowardly. And his strategy seems to be, right, if I just sit here and not be a conservative, People are going to be so disgusted and horrified by the Conservatives that they'll have to vote for me. They'll have to vote for Labour. Now, that might happen, but I think that's a very dangerous strategy, because if people perceive that politics doesn't deliver for them, that if there is no real choice, that no one's going to stand up for workers, no one's going to stand up for the living world, no one's going to stand up for hard-pressed families who are desperately struggling to pay the rent and to pay the bills, then they don't turn To one of two bad choices. They look for an anti politics instead. And that's why neoliberalism and fascism go hand in glove. Neoliberalism, as practiced by Truss and to a lesser extent Starmer, shuts down political choice. People then look elsewhere and they find fascism an attractive option. So I think Starmer's playing a very dangerous game. He's doing tactics, but he's not doing strategy. He's not seeing the bigger picture.
1: George Mambio we want to thank you for being with us. Author, activist, Guardian, Calmas will link to your pieces. Britain faces crisis upon crisis and our leaders are absent. This is how a country falls apart. Your latest. Next up, we go to Chile, where voters have overwhelmingly rejected a proposed new constitution that would have given Chile one of the most progressive charters in the world. Stay with us. Last Refugee, by Roger Waters. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman, with Juan González, as we turn to Chile, where, on Sunday, voters rejected a new constitution that would have replaced the one imposed by the military dictator General Augusto Pinochet 49 years ago, after a U.S.-backed military coup with one of the most progressive charters in the world. Results show about 62 percent of Chileans voted no while 38 percent voted in favor of the new Constitution. The proposed charter grew it out of an anti-austerity demonstrations in 2019. It was the first in the world to be written by an equal number of male and female delegates, and included new rights for indigenous people—legalized abortion, mandated universal health care and new commitments to address the climate crisis. It also strengthened regulations on mining, prompting an editorial from the Washington Post editorial board that opposed the Constitution based in part on how it could make it harder for the United States to acquire Chilean lithium used for batteries and laptops and cars. Chile's president, Gabriel Boric, has been a major supporter of the new constitution since he was elected in December and sworn in this past March as the youngest president in the country's history. President Boric spoke Sunday in Santiago after the results showed the proposed new charter had been rejected and said he wants to restart the process in order to meet a 2020 mandate.
3: As the President of the Republic, it is with great humility that I take this message and make it my
2: own.
3: We have to listen to the voice of the people, not just today, but the last intense years we've lived through. Let us not forget why we have come this far. That malaise is still latent, and we cannot ignore it. Those who have historically supported this transformation process must also be self-critical of our actions. Chileans have demanded a new opportunity to meet, and we must live up to this call.
1: Sunday's vote came on the anniversary of the September fourth, 1970, election of the socialist Salvador Allende as Chile's president, before he was overthrown in the 1973 U.S.-backed military coup that installed General Augusto Pinochet as dictator and left the country with the constitution it still uses today. For more, we're joined by two guests. Ariel Dorfman is with us, Chilean, American author, human rights defender, playwright, poet, who was cultural and press advisor to President Allende's chief of staff during the last months of his presidency in 1973, right before Allende died in the palace, September 11, 1973. Ariel Dorfman is the author of a number of books, including most recently Voices from the Other Side of Death. And in Santiago, Chile, we're joined by Javiera Manzi. She's a feminist who played a role in the drafting of the proposed new constitution with the delegates. Welcome both to Democracy Now! Um, Ariel Dorfman, if we can start with you, the significance of the charter and the charter's defeat.
5: This was uh, an extraordinary Magna Carta, both because of its origins. Uh, in, in a popular protest, because it was drafted by people who looked like Chile itself, not sort of elite experts who uh, behind closed walls were constantly deciding what others would would be ruled by. And it was, as you mentioned, you know, incredibly ecological, the most advanced in the world. It extended democracy and participatory uh, forms in, in all levels it legalized, not a legalized abortion, but, you know, when I read the Constitution, and I've read it several times, the one that has just been rejected. What, what calls attention to myself is the extraordinary tenderness with which it's it, it's it's been composed and written. It speaks about the glaciers. It speaks about the air. It speaks about the children, over and over again, the children. It speaks about the caretakers at home. It speaks about the animals. It speaks about the dogs. It speaks about everything vulnerable that needs to be taken care of. And of course, it includes there for the first time, those who have been invisible and exfoliated constantly by, uh, by the, 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 the major powers in Chile, the indigenous populations. It is also an extraordinarily feminist constitution. And I just could go on and on and on. I had 388 articles, perhaps too many, but uh, it. Its, its rejection is uh, is a very significant defeat. However, I am not entirely pessimistic about what the future will bring. And I could explain further if, if you feel that I, that I need to do so. Uh, some of the reasons why this happened, because we should not forget that 62% of the people in the largest election, 13 million voters, much more than ever before in the nation's history, did reject this proposal. And they did not, however... Because 80 percent of the people decided previously that there has to be a new constitution. So we will have a new constitution. The question is if we are now under the veto power of the right wing people in Congress who will try to restrict as many of these rights as possible.
6: And Javier Mansi, I wanted to ask you, you were part of helping to draft this new constitutional proposal with constituent Alondra Carrillo. Uh, what's your reaction to seeing it defeated, and why do you think that occurred? Uh, some critics say that uh, the, the the writers attempted to go too far ahead of where the Chilean people were at this point. Uh, your response. Yes,
2: yes. Um well good morning. I think that for us the first thing we have to uh, uh answer is what was in stake in this election in this referendum. Uh, what did the people actually reject when they went to vote rejection? Was that uh the st- it's at stake the um, the contents of this draft or was that there something else? For us I was part of the coordination of the um, social movements committee uh, for the campaign for the approval. And yesterday we made a declaration where we said that this was, of course, a defeat, but an electoral defeat, not the defeat of a project. And that for us is what is at stake today. today. Uh, how we uh, understand and interpret this result. Because, for, of course, for the uh, far right, this is being... Um, said to be the defeat of a project, the defeat of a cycle of social mobilization. And for us, it's important to say that this was a campaign that we did in an extreme context of inequality. The terms of how we had to campaign in a context where every single uh, social media, every single, um, the the TV set in the house of every person in Chile was always talking about, not only um, fake news, but about a context Content that wasn't even there. The idea that people would um, have no housing, for instance, or that private property was going to pass at stake or was in, um, in a menace. It was a very widespread idea. And so we had to be made a campaign in a context that it was very difficult to defeat that uh, common sense idea that was starting to spread out. And in a context that this was the first time since 2012 that we had a mandatory vote, so there was like um, there was a whole part of this of the society in Chile that went to vote for the first time in ages. So it was a very um, important. It's very important for us to say, and these days are going to be very important to try to understand, interpretate, and to. Uh, say what's at stake in the future days and the future of a possible constituent process.
6: And Ariel Dorfman, I wanted to ask you about this issue of the disinformation campaign that was launched within Chile and also some of the propaganda outside of Chile. uh, As Amy mentioned, the Washington Post editorial uh, saying that, quote, lithium is a key input in batteries that run millions of laptops and upon which the United States is basing its electrified automotive future. Chile sits atop the world's largest lithium reserves. You remember when American companies were concerned, more concerned with Chile's copper uh, back in the days uh, of Allende and, and how Chile has always been seen as a resource. Uh, for the uh, western imperialist uh uh countries
5: yes first the this information campaign the fake news uh, the the official official uh, uh, people in in charge of the election have said that eighty nine percent of the funding for the rechazo the people who rejected was versus eleven percent of the money spent by the approval people, right. So that's four to one. You have to imagine how unequal, as uh, as we just heard uh, our, our colleague in Chile say, right? So that fake in, in information was very cunningly used, as was used problems that the Constituent Assembly itself had, certain extravagances, certain scandals that happened, but always trying to create a fake sense of what was in the Constitution. I think many people didn't even read what was in the Constitution. They simply had an impression of it in relation to to, to this. What's interesting is that just as in the case of Allende, this is an anti-extractive constitution meaning it does not it does not put extraction as the center of Chile's development but people as the center of its development the richness of Chile is its people if we have the lithium of course we've got lots of lithium as before we had the copper we still have that copper but the important thing here is is that we one of, one of the forms of the Constitution speaks about the fact that we have sovereignty over what is in our subsuelo, in our minerals, right? And of course, people are very worried about that outside, despite the fact, of course, that the Constitution itself does not say that we will stop foreign investments or things like that. We will simply have control of it, as, as, as in, the, in the case when Allende nationalized copper, by the way, with the unanimity of Congress. So, of course, outside The Washington Post, which I found strange, really, to tell you the truth. Uh, The Wall Street Journal, which I didn't find so strange. The Economist, which I didn't find so strange. Lots of people from the outside kept on speaking about these things. And these were reverberated in Chile, right? Whereas when somebody like Pedro Pascal, for instance, would would tweet about that, or the international socialist groups would speak about that, or Thomas Piketty would speak about how wonderful, or constitutional experts all around the world saying this constitution, in fact— extended rights, it did not restrict rights. All that was shouted down, was shut down, was, was forgotten, right? So there is a campaign uh, outside Chile. It's not unanimous either because there have been uh, relatively good good things. There's, there's been a very good op-ed in the New York Times as well. And I myself was able to write something in the Los Angeles Times. And tomorrow I have something in the Guardian. So it's not as if we're, we're, we're completely uh, muted in that sense. But there is a, a worry among the, the let's call us the, the oligarchs of the world, those who, who control the riches of the world, and who, who are the equivalent of those who control the riches in Chile, right? I mean, the, the amount of money spent by the corporations in Chile is simply shameful.
1: I wanted to just—when you said it was surprising, Washington Post, uh, Common Dreams, Brett Wilkins had an interesting piece where he said Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos and other billionaires, including Bill Gates this year, invested nearly $200 million in cobalt metals, which, according to Mining.com, quote, is on a global search for key battery metals, cobalt, lithium and nickel, as well as copper, which is key to the green energy transition. Um, uh, might help explain something there. But I wanted to end with Javiera Manzi, the feminist activist who played a key role in the protests in Chile and then um, uh, working with others in the drafting of Chile's proposed new constitution. Where you go from here, Javiera?
2: Well, it's a. We must say it's a very hard time for us in Chile. Have uh, to start from there. Um, the result is not only at an electoral defeat in the sense that the constitution was not approved, but it also shows the extent of the hegemony of neoliberal uh, common sense and how there's a very uh, major. Um, we have to a challenge to overcome this moment, not only in terms of the uh, constituent process, but of course in terms of how the far right has gained a lot of um, power and visibility al- along this campaign. For us, it's important on what is at stake in this moment is to try to overcome, to, con- uh, to create a new alternative uh, politically and visible, visible feminist alternative because I think that in this moment, this very moment, including feminism is at stake. Um, we need to overcome as well because we know that was what was rejected is not the context or it's not the content of the, the constitution. It's not the recognition of domestic labor. It's not the recognition of a right to decide on abortion and sexual justice. It's not the recognition of housing, um, health, labor rights. But it's uh, something else. And it's the idea that we had to change and transform the structure, the neoliberal and authoritarian structure of Chile that will continue to, um, to govern us. So... Uh, for us, it's very important to say that social movement, grassroots uh, organization, and the feminist movement, as a whole, is, We are now uh, taking a moment to um, to think, to analyze these results, and to um, to organize ourselves because it's going to be a very hard moment. We are going to leave the crisis, this economic global economic crisis, in a context of uh, of a government that will have to overcome these results and that we'll have to rearrange its political um, forms and alliances, and we need it to be, not to be, in terms of how they're going to give more space for a neoliberal um, answer to this uh, this moment. So we're going to keep on fighting for a new constituent process, and going to keep on fighting against the advance of the far right. And, of
1: course, we will continue to cover it. I wanted to ask Ariel if you could um, close this segment with a poem from your latest book.
5: Yes. uh, This is about the disappeared, because it turns out that we are fighting also for the disappeared, or desaparecidos. We're fighting for all the dead who died so that we could have a different Chile. It's called Last Will and Testament. When they tell you I'm not a prisoner, don't believe them. They'll have to admit it someday. When they tell you they released me, don't believe them. They'll have to admit it's a lie someday. When they tell you I'm in France, don't believe them. Don't believe them when they show you my false ID, don't believe them. Don't believe them when they show you the photo of my body, don't believe them. Don't believe them when they tell you the moon is the moon. If they tell you the moon is the moon. If they tell you this is my voice on tape— that this is my signature and a confession. If they say a tree is a tree, don't believe them. Don't believe anything they tell you, anything they swear to, anything they show you, don't believe them. And finally, when that day comes, when they ask you to identify the body and you see me and a voice says, we killed him, the poor bastard died. He's dead when they tell you that I am completely, absolutely, definitely dead. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. No les creas, no les creas, no les creas. Don't believe them when they say there will be a new constitution. Don't believe them when they say that the people of Chile will stop struggling for justice and social equality. Thank you so much.
1: Ariel Dorfman, Chilean-American activist and author, reading from his most recent collection of poems, Voices from the Other Side of Death and Javier Amanzi, feminist leader in Chile, who helped delegates in drafting Chile's proposed new constitution. Next up, we remember author Barbara Ehrenreich. Stay with us. your yeah, sure. Appreciation by King Sunny Aday, one of Barbara Ehrenreich's favorite musicians. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show remembering the author, the activist Barbara Ehrenreich, who's died at the age of 81, best known for her book, Nickel and Dimed, on not getting by in America. To research the book, she went undercover as a low income, non skilled worker at Walmart. She was a waitress at a restaurant. She worked in a nursing home and a cleaning service. She later founded the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Barbara wrote more than 20 books beginning in 1969 with Long March, Short Spring, The Student Uprising at Home and Abroad, a book about anti war protests she co wrote with her first husband, John Ehrenreich. In a moment, we'll hear Barbara in her own words. But first, Juan, um, I'm wondering if you can talk about how you knew Barbara Ehrenreich as someone you worked with, along with other members of the Young Lords, which you helped found in the early 70s here in New York.
6: Yes, Amy, uh, I actually met Barbara in 1969. She'd just come out of graduate school from her her Ph.D. and had joined a group that really became a— a seminal group uh, in the radical critique of the American healthcare care system it was called uh uh the Health Pack, the Health Policy Advisory Council, and she joined it uh, fresh out of uh, graduate school, and joined an extraordinary group of radical and revolutionary doctors and nurses that had gathered in New York City at the time. People like Rob Burledge, Ali, and Charlotte Fine, uh, Ruth Galanter, Harold Osborne, who was over at Lincoln Hospital at the time, uh, and Health Pack became sort of the nerve center for uh, the uh, the. Writing information to oppressed communities about the healthcare system. Of course, she and her former husband, John Ehrenreich, wrote the book, The, uh, the American Health Empire Power, Profits, and Politics. And they really are credited with, with shaping this analysis of the health industrial complex of the United States and the extraordinary focus on profit. In the American healthcare care system. She really was a pioneer uh, in that. And I remember often meeting, uh, I, th- I think it was 17 Murray Street, the health pack offices, all the radicals who were involved in some sort of issues around health care would meet on a regular basis. And Barbara provided a lot of the research and and uh, information that those of us who were organizing our communities didn't have at the time. A lot of the work we did in healthcare care would not have happened. Without the uh, the enormous uh, uh, reservoir of information that she provided to the Black Panther Party, the Republic of New Africa, the Young Lords, and other groups working in the black and brown communities, so she was and she was really a giant. And I recommend to people who don't know that part of Barbara's history to read an article she wrote about twenty years later, and you can find it on the internet. It's called giving power to the people, the early days of Health HealthPAC. And she credits to her experience at Health HealthPAC with really shaping her entire uh, uh, worldview. Uh, and, uh, of course, she went on to do many important, and wonderful things. She's really one of the towering figures of the radical and progressive movement in America. And it's a, it's a tremendous loss, not only to her family, but to all who knew her and benefited from her work. She's passed away.
1: Well, Juan, let's turn to Barbara Ehrenreich in her own words on Democracy Now! It was 2011, as she talked about why she went undercover to work as a low-income, what is known as non-skilled worker, to write her classic book Nickel and Dimed on Not Getting By in America.
4: Well it, I took on a, a a challenge that I set myself, which was to see whether I could support myself on the money I could earn in well obviously entry level jobs, uh, which are the you know kind of jobs where you go and apply and they're not going to you know they're not going to sort a resume they're not gonna, they' don't, they don't care about anything except whether you're a convicted felon or whether you have you're actually you know it's legal for you to work in this country and all these jobs averaged at the time in um, around 2000 uh, about uh, $7 an hour, even including the tips with waitressing, uh, which at the, it would be equivalent to about $9 an hour now. And basically what I found that for me, just as one person i wasn 't trying to support my family with my earnings or anything like that uh, it It just wasn 't doable because the rents were so out of line uh, with uh, with my with my earnings and i i did I did try i mean i didn 't spend anything money except on gas food and um uh, you know, the, the bare minimum, which was possible to do because I was a, I worked at each city for only a month. You know, so I wasn't depending—you on know, medical care or anything like that was not uh, coming through my jobs. But uh, I found, you know, a very important thing—well, uh, two very important things. First, at $7 an hour or $9 an hour in today's dollars, you're not considered poor, you know, you don't show up in the poverty statistics. That You're considered to be fine if you're one individual earning that much. And the other big lesson here is—which uh, is maybe a hard one to remember at a time of high unemployment—is that jobs are not necessarily a cure for poverty. Jobs that don't pay enough to live on do not cure poverty. They condemn you, in fact, to a life of low wage uh, labor and, and, and extreme insecurity. This figure, Barbara,
1: of the number of Americans on food stamps—almost one in six, almost fifteen percent—the figures from May, um, people on food stamps uh, were twelve percent higher than a year earlier, according to the Agriculture Department. One in almost six Americans. And this applies directly to the people that you met, um, to the jobs that you took. For example, being a Walmart associate. Talk about that and um, the woman you wrote about and where she is today.
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the surprises to me, and it's not a surprise anymore because a lot more research has been done, is how many uh, Walmart employees depend on some kind of government program to supplement their low wages uh, and pathetically <laughs> inadequate health insurance, which most people can't afford anyway. In fact, when you, uh, I, I noticed that uh, when I went through the orientation for my job at Walmart and there was a whole table full of new hires sitting around, uh, you know, that they the Walmart people asked to see whether anybody here might be eligible uh, for TANF, for example, ter- Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, because they're kind of depending on that government—those government supplements uh, to keep people going. You're not going to do too well on just your Walmart pay. And then, at another time, as a Walmart associate, um, I went to seek uh, food aid— um, I went to a pu- sort of public slash private uh, charitable uh, place that you could get. A, you could come out with a sack of, of, of food. And when the interviewer, the social worker who interviewed me, kept getting me mixed up with somebody, uh, you know, I'd tell her that I had a car and then she'd forget I had a car and so on. Uh, and then she said, um, you know, it's just we, we have other people, you know, people are always coming from Walmart. You work at Walmart, I get you mixed up. And that, to me, was a big clue. So
1: a- That's Barbara Ehrenreich on Democracy Now! in 2011, on the 10th anniversary of her classic book Nickel and Dimed on Not Getting By in America. She died on September 2nd, at the age of 81, among her other books, The American Health Empire, Power, Profits and Politics, and Bait and Switch, The Futile Pursuit of the American Dream. Barbara Ehrenreich's son, Ben, wrote on Twitter about his mother, she was never much for thoughts and prayers, but you can honor her memory by loving one another and by fighting like hell. To see all our interviews with Barbara Ehrenreich, you can go to democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a people and culture manager. Go to democracynow.org for more info and apply. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay safe.